1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's gone, is that, it's the second
2: time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home does, does, does. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it
0: better. You can understand that, can not
3: you? Yes. Good
0: luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team.
2: Second captain, first captain, whatever. New York, I love you, but you me down. New York was his town, and it always would be. Lopez wants it away.
4: And it's a deep- Jones on the run, this one has a chance,
2: a run by Piazza, and the Mets lead 3-2. to Amid Ali in the red front. Joe Frazier in the green front. almost ready for the fight of the so century. Met to read on the forecourt, right side from 20, jumps, Willis has hit on his first
4: two. Behind the bag, it gets through Buckner, here comes Knight in the Mets
3: win it. I know we're going to win, I have that attitude, I feel that way, and it's not... Overconfidence thing it's football stands. But easy onto it comes Houghton and Houghton with a shot, and it's there. Ray
4: what splendid sparkling opportunism for the old left leg this time. Remember Stuttgart 88, It's Ray
2: Houghton once again. It's Italy Nil. It's Ireland one.
1: This is incredible.
2: Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast, coming at you from New York City. Hi, Murphy if Ken. Hello there, uh, are you? Well, What's I'm pretty, going down? I'm pretty damn good, Ken, I'm pretty damn good. We're in the Brass Monkey Bar here on Little West 12th Street, right in the heart of the meatpacking district. You're happy enough with your work environment today, guys? Maybe see you mm. going, Kieran? Yeah?
3: Well, I was. I mean, uh, I actually went through... So we're staying in Fitzpatrick's Grand Central Hotel, right? So, which meant that I had to go through Grand Central... Uh, station at 8.30am this morning. That's New York time, obviously. And uh, suffice to say that not alone was it rather busier than say, Miltown, which is where I'm from. It's, it was also quite a bit busier than Dublin 8 as well, I have to say. It was a bit of an eye-opener. Um, But it is. It's a pretty
2: energetic town. Describe this out up here, Ken.
0: Um, well, I I can see a lot of exposed brickwork. There's exposed brickwork on both sides. is exposed... Light bulbs. Exposure is really the theme of this brass monkey. Uh, here, uh, uh, those sort of Edison-style light fittings. Uh, bottles of booze over there by that on that mirrored rack. Uh, it's a
3: totally untended, uh, untended bar that we've been sitting in for the last number of hours. But of course, and here
2: we are talk Here we are talking away. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it's very nice. Big thanks to the great people at Aer Lingus for flying us over, and apologies once again to the really nice stewardess who was a little bit freaked out by Murph getting on the plane and immediately putting on a Statue of Liberty crown and torch. Hmm.
3: Well, I mean, it's just... Uh, she, uh, was, she was worried, Murph. She was well, she
2: came over straight away and said, uh, is this a stag party?
3: Uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, to the, to, the, to the untrained eye, I'm sure that's what it looked like. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's just a Statue of Liberty uh, fake flame torch... And uh, tiara headset. She actually
2: said, I hope it's a stag party. Yeah. And we were informed her we were actually working. No, no, no. She just became a, increasingly concerned Just a business trip, don't mind, mind me. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not. Great. What movie did
3: you go for? Um, oh, Watch Brooklyn, uh, Owen.
2: Ah, that explains the tears
3: rolling down your face. <sighs> I did. I, I don't know. It was just, it was very, uh, it spoke to me, uh, Owen. Um, You know, the story of emigration is um, is one that's very you know, close to my heart, Go and on. both both sides of my family, of course. My my grandmother, I think, was the only one of four sisters to to stay in Ireland. So um, the three three of three of her sisters embarked on the same journey that uh, Saoirse Ronan did in that in that that fine motion picture. But my own my own grandmother on my father's side, um, she went she came to the Greater New York area uh, as an eighteen year old, uh, took up a job working with the rich family over here. And uh, her time in America was cruelly cut short on. It's a terrible story,. Um, uh, it was a health health issue, actually. Uh, she got hit on the head by a golf ball uh, by the owner of the large house which she was working for. Um, now, I believe that the the family lore tells me that uh, she was thinking of coming home anyway, but it was the golf ball that really you know put the the, the full stop on her time here in America. Um, but no hard feelings. No. You know the the wider Murphy family, absolutely not a problem. we We still embrace America. But perhaps you know we we know also that there are dangers. There are pitfalls um that can come at you from any angle here.
0: You're descended from the part of the family that were like the Gombeen uh, the Gombean people who were successful in Ireland. Uh, the local through pound of flesh merchants who uh,
3: absolutely not running
0: running the town like that mean old woman in in Brooklyn.
3: Absolutely not, Ken. We're, we we were not of the merchant class. We were of the underclass. Okay. Um, uh, small small farmers in the West of Ireland and cleaning out the sodas
0: for that mean old woman. While the best the, and brightest the Mrs. flock Brady, to The,
3: the Missus Brady that comes into the shop and skips the queue. Oh, that everyone was you. else in the shop that's that's the Murphys and the Cairns, <laughs> right. right? So just 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 remember that, Ken. I mean, Owen watched Brooklyn as well. I, and I was curious because I was a teary mess at various stages throughout the movie. Um, and Owen watched it much like he would watch Cold kind of a, uh, like a National Geographic documentary <laughs> right. on the Amazonian rainforest. Mm. Um, because the struggle of the Irish underclass is not something that Owen is really familiar with. Yeah. You know, yeah. so... Oh,
2: sure. In Dublin, we were lording it back then. You know, there's nobody having to head off in yeah. any set sort of boats. I'm glad that... I'm glad that you're... F- the, 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 the
3: sunlight is finally breaking through there on that you you, you understand now something about about my struggle.
2: Ken, you gave... the struggle of my forebears.
0: Dine camp. I've
2: got to take you up on something, Ken. You gave uh, poor old Henry Shefflin uh, a pretty awful movie recommendation there on the flight, he was telling me.
0: Well, I was sitting next to Henry Shefflin on the flight. Uh, we were two big men on the plane yeah. and they kind given giving us sort of seats with extended leg room by an exit uh i didn't realize you know I, when i arrived there there was henry shefflin he was already there um you know we chatted about this and that uh at one point i said uh, i was looking at the movies you know in the magazine i was like hmm. i was kind of looking through the list and i'd seen most of them and then i said oh point break you know as they've done a remake of point break uh i haven't uh, that might be interesting and, you know, I mean, it wasn't like I thought it was the best movie on the list, but i mm. looked through them and I was like, well, I've seen that, seen that, seen that. Revenant is the worst movie I've ever made. Uh, and then got down to Point Break. I said, oh. So I don't know what, exactly when. Maybe I woke up at some point and then looked over and could see that Henry Shefflin was attentively <laughs> watching Point Break, mm. right? I knew it was Point Break I mean, because it was guys like jumping out of planes and surfing. And I thought, oh, no, he's actually watching this. Uh, <laughs> I'd better man up and put it on myself, you know, just Mm. to sort of recommended it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I start watching something else, he's going to feel betrayed, you know, Mm. actually I did watch something else at first. It was something like something called love is a sting. It's like a short, it's like a a short movie about a a, a children's author and a mosquito who comes to his house and ends up communicating with him, Mm. which was quite, which was a lot better than point break actually, (laughs) uh, which I eventually put on. And I mean, obviously, I was a fan of the original Point Break. I mean, oh, we all were. Yeah. Mm. Top class movie. And the new movie is a little bit different. It's like the idea you still got Johnny Utah, although he he calls himself Brigham, I think. I don't know if that's after Brigham Young. Or uh, what the what the deal is? Utah. Why would like, you
3: change a name like Johnny Utah?
0: Oh, he's he's got some Utah's got some issues with him. Oh, because it, it starts off without okay. giving away too much with a personal tragi- tragedy. Basically, him and his, his his mate are going around motorbiking around, and his mate motorbikes off a cliff, mm. and he's like no, and then he, he becomes, sorry, what was that line again? No. no, and you see the guy, you know, he's brown you know, bread. Like, mm. I mean, that's that's the first scene. And, and like thinking, uh,
3: Sylvester Stallone's uh, Cliffhanger horse, Do, does Another, that no, Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then he, he's Jet troubled. The so. Yeah, yeah.
0: He's troubled then. And I think the name Utah then has has got some bad some bad connotations for him. But he's like he's a polyathlete. That's the thing, right? Mm. Poly, like an extreme polyathlete, meaning kind of a rich kid idiot who goes around doing extreme sports. Uh, but now, then he joins the FBI, and then there's like this series of crimes happening. By guys wearing president masks, he said the presidents are now like Obama, Bush, you know. and uh,
3: Hashtag reboot.
0: Well, he quickly notices that actually the crimes that they're committing have something to do with like something that only like extreme polyathletes would do. Like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they seem to be trying to do this impossible list of eight like polyathlete, like extreme mm-hmm. sport things around the world. And he kind of links these in. The Ozaki, insi- eight. Hmm? The Ozaki eight. The, the, that's it! The, the, the Ozaki Ozaki a. A. Did yeah. you watch Point Break?
3: No, uh, well... You
0: did, you did. Okay, the Ozaki. Okay, he watched it, right? He learned it from the movie. Okay, he is okay. Simon Hick in case we getting <laughs> his
2: voice. We don't give him an actual microphone, obviously.
0: But the whole... The, so, so far, so basically the same as The Other Point Break. But really all this movie is, is just an excuse to show these kind of extreme sports. It's just like this kind of, you know, like a music video type depictions of... You know, oh wow! Like here's a guy surfing a really big wave. Here's a guy like jumping out of a plane. Oh, here's a guy parachuting into a into a chasm.
3: It's like Simon's uh, recently viewed on YouTube. That's basically what it sounds like <laughs> to me.
0: That's, but you can see this stuff on YouTube, and it's and it's kind of much better. It doesn't have all this pretension of, of a of a movie, which it, with this fake emotional structure and this. You know, um, spurious link to a movie that you used to like when you were young. Anyway, I turned it off, but I saw Henry Shefflin was sticking with it because once he starts doing something, mm. he goes all the way. Oh, I don't think so. But I was just dreading. I was like, how long is this movie? <laughs> I, I had, I, I had turned on some other thing. Like I was watching Game of Thrones, mm. and uh, <laughs> and uh, he Henry Shefflin had f- eventually finished watching Point Break. But I thought, nah, I'll keep my headphones on because I don't want to have to... This this conversation is going to be awkward. Like, that was one of the te- yeah, worst movies Yeah, thanks for nothing, ever. Uh But he kind of looked over and he saw me watching it. He's like, oh, you turned it off. I was like, uh, yeah, it was it was a bit disappointing. And then he looked at Game of Thrones, which was on, you know, it was the scene with, like, Daenerys Targaryen, like, you know, summoning the dragons or whatever. And uh, he's like, bit far-fetched. <laughs> <laughs> and I said... Well, not as not as far fetched as the point break we <laughs> to, to be honest, uh, to be
2: honest, Henry. So uh, I'm not sure Henry fully saw sparkly. through. To be honest, and I think he might have switched off before mm. the end himself. But Henry Shefflin, one of our greatest Irish sportsmen of all, of all time, as well as watching <laughs> mediocre movies, mm. uh, is if the point break hasn't entirely broken his spirit. Is over with us, and our favorite boxer is here too—the former and future world middleweight champ Andy Lee. No word yet on what Andy watched on the flight over. They're both going to be upstairs on the rooftop bar in Brass Monkey here on Wednesday night for our mega live show. Joining them will be New York residents John Duddy mm-hmm. and Des Bishop. Yes, Holy indeed. shit, Murph, that's a lineup. <laughs> I know it's
3: it's a lineup and a half on, yeah. and uh, we're going to have a ball. So I mean, it 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 kind of seems unfair that we have to. You know, that that we're down here. We should be doing this up on the roof terrace as well. I suppose it's, it's raining a little. Yeah, low. it's a little but bit drizzly. Good, good yeah, weather forecast for tomorrow, though. So yeah, so we're going to have a ball. It's gonna that show's
2: going to be available for podcast on Thursday. On this one, we're diving deep into the part of a sportsman's brain that compels them to forget how brilliant they are at what they do and instead blow it at the biggest moment. Sam Weinman was at Augusta to watch Jordan Spieth get his, well, grit his teeth, really, and drape the green jacket over at the shoulders of Danny Willett on Sunday a narrative that tied in nicely to a book that Sam is writing at the moment uh, in, on the study, in which he studies the dynamic of losing Sam had a great interview with Greg mm. Norman about the it, most famous collapse of all in the Masters 20 years ago yeah
3: it's basically like uh, John Terry having to present the European Cup to Ryan Giggs in after the champions league final in moscow yeah, that's, that's basically, basically what jordan yeah, Speed yeah. had to do yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, twice <laughs> actually i believe you have to do that yeah. twice to go yeah once inside and once outside which in fairness that's not
2: great sam's not far away Sorry. he's on the way here from his office at the world trade center so he should land in, in a couple of minutes murph we popped out of randall's island last night just north of just northeast of manhattan between east harlem the south bronx and Astoria, queens for those who know their new york geography mm. to catch up with this guy and Johnny Glynn is setting sail here, 30 metres out,
1: up over the defender's head, it's Glynn, he scores, what a goal, 52 seconds are gone.
2: Let's talk about your performance first of all, was that one of those days where just everything went right for you from the very, very start?
1: Know, it's boxy enough no. to be honest, um, I suppose when I got the first goal I kind of pushed on from there, and uh, it was just lucky, everything broke my way anyway, so I was happy that way.
2: What's this about go away only having one forward?
1: Uh, it's
2: fucking bullshit Is it in your sense Sorry sorry um. <laughs> Oh no Oh always Johnny Glynn ah, Also a, sh- a really Top class hurler As well as the Giver of superb Post match interviews I know I know And uh, there's just Something so There
3: was something So refreshing about that Because he had played So brilliantly That uh, that was after the Court game Last year And he played all so quarter br- final For Galway yeah. Sorry, yeah He had played So brilliantly that day And the question You know uh, Obviously uh, Joanne Candle was framing it In such a way as to you know, to get a reaction, a positive, yeah, yeah, to get a reaction, and to say that you know, obviously, you guys, there's so much to it more than that, but to more to the goal or forward lines of Kilkenny, but there was, that's exactly what Johnny Glynn thought at that exact moment. So it's hard to hold a, <laughs> hold it against a guy, who uh, who decides to speak like that. But Johnny, of course, has been a, a absolutely uh, brilliant hurler for the last uh, three last year, in ways last year was his breakout year. But I mean, even as a 19 year old, he was re- he actually really put it up to Kilkenny in the the replay that year, and in the drawn game as a 19-year-old, yeah. you know, in 2012. Um, and obviously, he's a huge man, has all the physical gifts as well, but showed with the goal that we just heard there, the jerk commentary, commentary. Uh, you know, lovely dexterity as well, lovely stick work. So he's he's obviously a huge loss to goal, we'll get into that with him in the chat. What's he um, over
2: here? The, he's not, he's not, he's not he's, going to be back for Galway this year. York, he's not going to
3: be back for Galway this year. He's staying in New York for the year. And uh, it's very interesting, actually, on, on why he, he has made uh, a decision like that. Um, and, uh, Hulse, but he's uh, keeping busy by playing for the New York footballers this year as well. So we'll hear all about that in, in the course of the interview that we'll play in, uh, in a few
2: minutes. All right, Sam Wyman from Golf Digest, author of "Win at Losing: Harnessing the Power of Setbacks to Succeed in Work and Life," has arrived in Brass Monkey. Get the man a second captain's mug oh, for crying out oh, loud! Here we go. Oh, congratulations, Sam. Thank you. Oh, I'm honored yeah. to have this. Well, this is a friend of Brian Murphy's, uh, so automatically a friend of ours. How well do you know U.S. Murphy' as we call him?
4: <laughs> I know him well enough. I mean, I knew him before he was a big radio star. But I was, uh, I was telling you guys earlier that we used to travel the golf beat together, covering all the tournaments, and uh, before he was. Uh, a star of the airwaves he was he was uh he was a fantastic writer i guess he still is a fantastic writer but but uh but a lax one um anyway um so we you know five three or four years we did that together and stayed have stayed close ever since
2: yeah good fun at augusta with yeah. him. i'm sure
4: it was he was he tore it up i don't know if he's still that way <laughs>
2: what about this year an easy question to start with what exactly happened to Jordan Speed on the 12th hole on the final day? <laughs>
4: well, I, I think... A You've lot only of, got an hour and a half to yeah, answer it right, right. so, uh, I mean, you can, you can answer it a thousand different ways. I mean, the, the the simplest way is he collapsed. And even he said it. I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, everyone saw it. It's like, can you imagine the strain that a guy would be under um, leading that tournament for seven straight uh, rounds? I mean, it's just... Even though he seemed like he handled it so well, just the amount of pressure... That you must feel having the lead, holding the lead, knowing that guys are coming after you, knowing that those holes you know await you on the back nine every round. Um, so I think it just caught up to him. I mean, you know, the 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 first part is he got a, a, he hit a bad shot. You know, he hit this shot on 12. He talked a little bit about it, where he likes to hit a draw and bring it in there, and he sort of had this brain cramp and hit up, hit a cut, hit a. Hit a fade ball, lost momentum, hit that bank, rolled into the water. Now it's now it's real. Now you're now you're now you're starting to think about it because you, you could make the argument that he had a pretty good roll going up until that point, even when he hit that shot. But now he's like, oh shoot, I gotta <laughs> I gotta perform under pressure. And the 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 next shot he hit, which he was hitting three, is. Arguably one of the worst shots I've ever seen a professional golfer hit. Now, granted, I hit you know seven or eight of those around, but but just given what it was, I mean, it was this really fat uh, approach shot, and he just jumped it into the into the water. And at that point, um, you know I'm sure his head was swimming. It, yeah, it was unbelievable to watch on TV. You were there. What was going on? Were you in the press room at the time? What was the reaction? I was. I was. I was out following him. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Augusta, um, but I was out on the front nine walking with him, but because you know I have to kind of keep track of a million things, especially when there's other guys doing things, I eventually retreat into the press room. But I was talking about this uh, yesterday, that the way they have <laughs> the TV set up, there's like, a, there's like a couple TVs and people are kind of watching, but there's a couple of them are at different times, so there's this delay. So... You know, some of us are watching it, quote unquote, live, and some of us are watching it like three seconds behind. And you would hear this audible groan throughout the room because they had just seen what happened. So it was just this collective (laughs) disbelief. and you know everyone else who we had the same reaction i'm sure everyone else on tv watching on tv had which is how is this happening you know this is devastating to this guy and you know um as a as a journalist i'm supposed to be impartial um but i'm heartache for the guy it was just brutal to watch so um you know the fact that he came back in the way that he did is is remarkable in itself but obviously it wasn't enough
3: yeah, he. Uh, how would you rank how he handled the press conference and what came immediately after, um, you know, this uh, possibly life-changing event?
4: I thought he handled it great. I mean, I, I mentioned this in a story yesterday. He had one testy moment. How do you not, how do you, you know, he had cameras sort of in his face so as he was walking off the 18th green, going to sign his scorecard, and they were right in his face, and he said, please, please get those cameras out of my face. He said it as politely as you can say without, you know, with a little bit of edge. Um, but then from there, you know, you know he kind of realized he had to collect himself and that he had to handle it gracefully and that there's just no time for pouting. I mean, he made the the case that no one has had a more difficult press conference. You think about all these guys who who have to give away the green jacket. It's I'm pretty sure it's never happened. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it rarely happens where the guy who's, who's giving away the green jacket, the previous year's champion, is the guy that just blew the tournament. Mm-hmm. So imagine mm-hmm. the strain that you're feeling in that situation. So I thought I handled it great. Um, you know... Put it on, Danny Willett. Smiled for him, clapped for him, fixed his collar. I mean, little things. And then he stands up and has to answer these questions. And you know, uh, he was asked, you know, seven, you know, different ways. What the hell happened there? And he, you know, he he answered it as honestly as he could.
2: He has to do that twice, doesn't he? Go through that rigmarole of giving the, of putting the green jacket on.
4: Yes. Yeah, so he goes through the press conference, or the, I'm sorry, the butler cabin ceremony on TV, which is all, already maybe the most awkward thing in, in television history, <laughs> regardless anyway. if it's your best yeah. friend. here yeah. you're, you're putting the jacket on. Jim Nance looks awkward yeah, there. It's just, Let alone the players. It's like yeah. painfully awkward, even under the best of circumstances. <laughs> um, and he stands there and has to speak to. Uh, you know what happened, and, and obviously be as gracious as possible. And then he's got to trot out and go do it on the 18th green. Uh, fortunately, that's only seen like on local. I don't even know who sees that other than the people who are there. But it's a similar thing. You know, he's got to stand up and and uh, put the jacket on uh, Danny Willett, and and you know then he has to has to clap and and all those things. So uh, I, I thought he I thought given all of that, he probably there's probably one million places he'd rather be than that. You know there. Uh, I thought he handled it pretty well. Yeah, I
2: think he was. He seemed happy with how he was handling it himself. He said, "I felt that I stood up there and smiled like I should." This is mm-hmm. a quote that you reported. I really like, like I should. In yeah. other words, he's like we all know you don't you, want to be you know, there. In a perfect world, I would behave very differently to how I'm behaving now. But this is, you know, this is these
3: are the cards that I've been dealt.
4: Exactly. I mean, he. he I mean, it's his way of saying. I'm miserable right now, and everyone knows I'm miserable. I'm faking it here. Yeah, <laughs> All of this noise is exactly, I'm it, yeah. But, you know, this is part of the deal, and to his credit, uh, whether he recognized it on his own or someone who was in his ear saying, hey, listen, you got to kind of go through this whole rigmarole here, mm-hmm. uh, he did it. Um, and I, I immediately think, and I'm not the first person to make this connection, but if you guys follow American football, the Super Bowl this year, where Cam Newton, the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, he had, you know, this miserable game. They were the best team in the league, and they lost – in his press conference he pouted the whole way and he walked out and then the the next day you know they said you were really miserable in the press conference what happened and he said Sho-, you know show me a good loser and I show you a loser <laughs> basically like I'm not going to put on any airs here I'm miserable here and I'm not going to pretend like a, you know I'm happy about it so
2: A lot of comparisons, uh, the comparisons are obvious, really, between Spieth and Greg Norman 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. Even before that round started, the the TV, uh, certainly back in Ireland, was showing the Greg Norman collapse, which happens all the time. And people rarely even talk about Faldo's role in that, but that's maybe another matter. You interviewed Norman for your book. It's out later in the year, but Mm -hmm. the interview's available now. We'll tweet a link to it. Uh, It's uh, at the chapter, I should say, with Greg Norman. What did Norman have to say about what happened to him 20 years ago when he shot a 78 in that final day to lose comfortably in the yeah. end? Well, I mean, Did he have an explanation? Because Speed obviously has no idea what happened just yet. I don't think he does anyway. Does Greg Norman know what happened to him that day over a, a sort of slower unraveling over the course of the round?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think a few things happened. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see as time passes with Jordan Speeth, like, if he's afforded new perspective. Like, right now he talks about the shot he hit on 12 and he hit a cut and he should have hit a draw. I remember, yeah, exactly. Um, but maybe over time he'll start, some other things will sort of start to come together. I think that's what happened with Greg Norman, where, you know, uh, in the immediate aftermath, he talked about how he felt fine, he felt good that day, and then in in years that passed, he says, actually, I felt off right from the start. You know, I had, he alluded to some personal issue, which, you know, conspiracy theorists can talk about what the personal issue was that morning that was sort of weighing on him, and he was just off. He said his back uh, was bothering him, and, I mean, and I think the pressure got to him, and so he shows up at the golf course, uh, has a six-shot lead, and everyone's like, basically, all you can do is screw up. Imagine having that thought in your head. You know, you can't screw this up. Now, here's this thing that you you've wanted your entire life, and it's there for you, and you can't mess. Imagine, keep, so,
3: so, as you say in, in uh, the chapter in, in the article on Golf Digest, it's like some guy actually comes up to him on Saturday night and says, "Even you can't f this up." <laughs> I mean, right, right. Uh, even like to be honest. Even if you go on and win the tournament like by eight shots, you're not thanking the guy for coming up and saying that on no, a Saturday night. it's it's
4: <laughs> unbelievable to me. It's just planning to See, I mean, I'm such a mental midget in terms of like, beat my ability to handle pressure and things like that. Mm. So I would fold so early <laughs> in the process it wouldn't. So it's a journalist,
2: to, to, by the way. I said so that. It's yeah. a an old British uh, or uh, an old school British guy. I think you said that to him, Peter Dobrunner. yeah. Yes.
4: Very famous, great writer, and they were. It, it, what's also often uh, misunderstood about that exchange is they were sort of friends or friendly, so it wasn't like he was saying, it, "Oh know? yeah, I trying mean, to yeah, kill but, him or anything." But still, <laughs> uh, you know, just planting that seed in his head. So I think he was off. I think everyone, um, leading up to the first round, was trying to, to you know, lift his spirits and say, "You got this." And he was preoccupied with the fact that something's wrong. I don't feel great. My swing feels off. And his his big mistake, he has said to this day, was that he should have acknowledged that before he teed off. He, rather than rather than sort of grit his teeth through it and just show up to the first tee, he should have said, "I'm off. This is bothering me. Whatever the actual specifics were, um, I need to talk this through a little bit." Like he, he never, should have, he
2: should have talked to his caddy maybe or someone like his that. His caddy or his coach or
4: whomever. Right. I mean, you know, it's 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 hindsight now, but just being able to to. To unburden himself a little bit would have would have helped. So he's already got that in his head. Then he hits a bad shot on the first hole, makes bogey, and then the you know the dominoes start to fall.
2: He didn't go into detail about what that personal problem was. No, you? I, now you, I'm sure you tried. <laughs> I asked him
4: several times, and for the purposes of. Of the story of certainly, people just want to know. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it was more like it was something. Yeah, it's just you know, yeah. Like,
2: I'm being as salacious as of course, the readers of talking about it. What exactly can, is the person? Exactly. Vision? I mean,
4: and believe me, I've heard every possible conspiracy theory, and I won't share them because it's not responsible. But you, know. we'll, we'll do it after your yeah. Of right? course, <laughs> <Don't>
2: worry, <laughs> okay. But the, the the point of your book, you know, I mentioned the title of your book earlier on. So you analyze the phenomenon of losing in sport and in politics. I know mm-hmm. you talked to CEOs, of companies, and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing, uh, but uh, which is, I think, a hugely interesting part of life, of how you actually deal with losing and try to turn it into a positive. Greg Norman's clearly a guy, when you look at him now, he's, he's not an unsuccessful man. No. He's not a man short of confidence in any way. In fact, he wasn't even in his golfing days, for the most part, bar the sort of poor last rounds at various major tournaments. So how did he process that and in some way take a positive experience out of such a disaster?
4: Well, I think in his case, so there's a million different ways you can handle a loss. And it's important to note that Norman was sort of at the tail end of his career. I mean, you know, he was 41, so not the, not the way in, but he, his window was closing to win majors. So, you know, the one way that people sort of handle losing is that they take whatever the episode was and they learn from it. And they say, okay, I did X, next time I'm going to do Y, and that's going to serve me well. He, he maybe he did a little bit of that as a golfer but for him i think one of the important points is that he was kind of a standoffish guy we talked a little bit about before about how Spieth handled this thing so well well speeth has this already this connection with the public well greg norman was a pretty arrogant guy you know and a tough guy to get close to and you know he was you know good looking wealthy vastly successful all these things and here's this moment where he's exposed in the most humiliating way possible and he i think just by nature of Going through it and everyone seeing it and acknowledging that everyone went that everyone saw it, he became much more human to people and he made a connection with, to people that that he wouldn't have made otherwise. Uh, go ahead. Button.
3: Yeah, no, just it's interesting as well because he says, you know, although I, I lost the golf tournament, I've won the tournament of life, which is a you know a corny phrase. <laughs> That's right? pretty corny, yeah, fairness. Yeah. And but I mean, the, the the central message is that he's he's processed the loss in mm-hmm. such a way as he can take the positive from it. And I don't know if you've heard of uh, Johan Cruyff. He's a very famous European footballer, Dutch footballer, uh, who died recently. And he at the, the pinnacle of his international career was he took Holland, uh, unfancied, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, a very unsuccessful nation, to a World Cup final in 1974, mm-hmm. which they lost to a f- vastly inferior team. And in the years after that, it's only in my head because the, sure. the man died a couple of weeks ago, but he, he said... Oh, well, no, you know, we played with style. We played the game with with style. And so it doesn't matter. No one remembers the West German team because we played all the best football, Mm -hmm. which is just... You know, it's, it's it's bullshit. You know, because at the end of the day, he lost the most important game of his life, and the only way that he could deal with it was to invent some narrative whereby he they're a more beloved team. And I just I'm kind of interested to hear what you yeah. would make of a, of you know a hugely successful footballer, you know the best European footballer maybe that there's ever been, talking in a way which is so obviously bullshit yeah yeah that, <laughs> that's
4: a really important distinction i think that's because i do talk about this sort of creating a narrative because sometimes it can be really helpful and and it's sort of applauded which is um something happened to you you lost and you create a narrative around it that makes you feel better but the important distinction and i talk to psychologists and people about this is it's got to be rooted in truth it's like that example of him saying well we play best no one cares about that we play the more stops. no one believes that and he's deceiving himself and there's nothing constructive coming out of that but people who can say, so for instance, with Greg Norman, it was like he said, I connected with people, and then it also shaped me um, in my business career. I learned to be, sort of be wary of mistakes I could make and how to correct them. All those things, it was, a, it was a real narrative. It was true. And he wasn't trying to deny that it was extremely painful or that, you know, he'd much rather have the masters than not. So he's not, you know, he's not distorting reality, but he is creating this new narrative. So that's a really important point is that there has to be, it has to be believable both to others, but mostly to yourself. What if somebody
2: can't find that narrative? What if, can you, can, is it possible in life just to put something down to a bad day or a bad moment or shit happens mm-hmm. and literally just leave it, leave it at that? Don't overanalyze it and move on with your life. Or do you feel based on the research that you've done that you actually have to find something positive out of every negative experience?
4: Well, I mean, look. I, I think one of the things that I make a really big point of saying in the book is I don't get into tragedy. Although there, you know, like you know, there are, there is a line here. We're talking about failure. We're talking about losing. And in the in the book, I do talk quite a bit about real real pain that people suffer, and you know, uh, health issues and things like that. But but there is a line there that I don't go to, which is you know, real tragedy, things that we don't want to you know, go into detail, but unexplainable things. Um, so, for the reason that one, although I do think that there is growth to come from that, you can't there's all this thing called you know, you've heard of post traumatic stress disorder, well there's also post traumatic growth. And that there's actual real studies about this that people who go through these unexplainably bad things can become stronger, more resilient people. Um, but I don't I don't go too much into that because I feel like that's a whole other category. But as far as like things that are just a bad day or things yeah. like that, well, I mean, or, or not about bad, it, but it things that it were a really low moment. and
2: say, say Jordan Speed, for example. Could he potentially just say, look, I'm going to forget about that. I, I'm actually not going to look for anything from it. I'm not going to see it as some life-affirming moment, even in a perverse kind of way. I just hit a number of crap shots in a row, mm-hmm. and I, I'm going I'm to move on from it.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's another part, too, which is that there is something to be said for isolating the moment, not letting it define you. And, you know, that's the sort of positive, which is, you know, the positive is that I'm not gonna let this thing be this monstrous thing. It doesn't mean that you have a negative experience and then you suddenly have to dissect it and dwell on it and move on. In some cases, okay, I know I'm still a good golfer. I know I'm one of the best golfers in the world, if not the best golfer in the world. I have two green jackets, whatever those things are, you're basically isolating this one failure and saying, okay, I'm compartmentalizing that I'm mo- and I'm moving on. You know, mm-hmm. and I talk about that in the, one of the stories I just wrote the other day, which is like, that's another way of dealing with losing a failure, which is like, um, you know, just making a mistake and realizing, okay, that happened and I'm, I'm ready to turn the page and, and moving on undeterred.
3: Yeah, and I, th- I think that if you're talking about, you know, the pantheon of, you know, great jokes, you know, golfing jokes, I don't think that speeds will come into it. Um, I think... It was a very spectacular fall from grace, but maybe I should rephrase that. It was a very big choke, but I don't think it's a choke that's going to define a guy. But you know, Murph,
2: yeah, just on that. When I was watching that, right, as he was set five shots clear, six shots hmm. clear, whatever he got to in the in the closing round, I was looking at it, and particularly with McElroy struggling, and honestly, I, I this is maybe I was just being lulled into this, but I was thinking, geez, I'm not sure about McElroy. Like long term, I think McIlroy is going to struggle. I think McElroy will struggle with himself actually quite yeah. a lot in his career. But this speed guy, I mean, like he's like an automaton, he's wrong, he's, know, an automaton. He's, yeah. he's he's he is tiger now, he's, he's dominating this tournament. He's going to win by eight shots, nine shots, and he's going to go on and win god knows how many mm. tournaments. And then it's amazing how it changed so quickly. So I do I actually think it does go down as one of the more sh- shocking moments,
3: yeah. Yeah, but I, I suppose my point is that he doesn't have to prove to himself that he. You know, no, he's done it already three know, What he lost out on is something that he's already won once before totally. in any case. And as a result, it's not going to haunt him to the, to the extent... Another example that you mentioned, Phil Mickelson not winning the US Open and it's 10 years since he mm-hmm. uh, choked at wing foot. So, I mean, certainly it was spectacular and it was great television. But I don't know that it's the sort of choke that's going to define... You know, um, when we Mm -hmm. sit down in 20 years to talk about Jordan Speed's career, I think he's probably going to have three or four Masters wins, and this isn't something that's going to be mentioned massively.
4: I mean, if we're going to project that far, that's that's where the safe money is, right? Is that this will not be – this is a blight and a pretty bad one, but, you know, he'll be able to win another Masters and put it behind him. It's kind of like you mentioned, Rory, is that the 2011 Masters that Rory lost, that could have been this, you know – devastating loss to him in some ways in the context of the masters it might yeah. still be but he did win the next major and that suddenly pushed that other failure back into the, into the background a little bit so i my my strong suspicion is that speed will rally it might not be this year but he'll over long term he'll be fine
2: it's very interesting you brought up that idea of legacy though because it reminded me of the more spectacular choke again in this tournament and that was ernie ailes i mean when we're talking about ernie ailes in 20 years do you think we'll be talking... Not, I'm, I'm not okay. If you take it away from, say, hardcore golf fans, mm. general sports fans, people are into sport a little bit and watch some golf, watch the majors, as a lot of us do, when they think of Ernie Els in 20, 30 years, do you reckon they'll remember the major victories or this complete shambles in the first green Uh, I
3: I think that would be spectacularly unfair on Ernie Els it is is, but honestly I I think that's
2: the kind of thing that sticks in people's mind who aren't as you looked shocked when I brought that question up I
4: I, I mean I would I would hope for his sake and I hope this is a commentary (laughs) on human nature that people will be able to get past. and this is a you know it's obviously like great fodder and you know I think this is what uh, I think
3: what uh, the point that Uh, there may be merit to the point from the point of view of
2: (laughs) it being certainly a vine that's easier to such a great clip for the way we consume sport now it's perfect Yeah. you know it's actually perfect it's got everything in there yeah
3: and I I just really hope that 20 years just because 20 years of uh, uninterrupted almost uninterrupted golfing success just because that can't be shrunken down into a vine doesn't mean it's going to be forgotten (laughs) as a result of uh, instead of I think
2: Sam's actually angry with me here no not at at (laughs) all
3: I mean I think if you were (laughs) going to make was well, That's it. I'm out of here guys. I'm <laughs> done.
4: No, I, I mean I think like Jean Vandevelde, you know, that was a collapse and he had nothing else to point to, or really nothing major to point to. You define him by his one collapse at, at Carnoustie in nineteen ninety nine. Ernie Els has won four majors, you know, and he's, you know, the, the, how the next couple of months or years of his career play out is still to be determined. And it looks like it's pretty devastating, but he's got a, he's built up enough capital in the public's yeah. eyes where <laughs> I think, I think uh, that won't be the defining legacy.
2: Sam, I don't know if you're a predictions kind of guy, but who do you think will win more majors over the course of their careers, Rory or Speed?
4: Well, I, where are my audience here? So, I mean, I'm a big Rory guy. I love I love the way he plays. I love his attitude. I think he's great. I do worry a little bit about the fight he has in him, you know, which is to say that when things go a little bit sideways on him, he doesn't seem to respond as well. I mean, Spieth, again, you know, fought his swing all week and still worked his way into contention and had a chance to win the Masters. Rory sort of, you know, pulls the shoot a little too quickly where he's not feeling it. And it's so evident in his body language and such. So, uh, based on that, I think that Spieth will win more majors. I think Rory is going to probably get on another run where he's going to win a you know some majors in spectacular fashion because just talent wise, you would argue he's the most talented golfer uh, in the world. You know, almost without question. And, and because but but he just when he's off he's off and everyone yeah. can tell it.
3: And there's those hour and a half or two hours in every uh, major tournament where he's just, his head seems to be elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But we, we hopefully he, there, he can shoot enough birdies in the rest of the other three and a half days to, to overcome.
2: Okay, let's so not got to go and try to bury Ernie Els's reputation. Some, <laughs> some more. I don't know what I have against Ernie Els. I always thought he was quite a, quite a nice guy. Listen, the book is called Win at Losing. That'll be out in full later this year? Uh, December, yes. December, okay, great stuff. Well, listen, we look forward to that and it's been great having you in studio. Thanks, Thanks so guys. Much. Really fun. Hair, flame, flame hair,
0: hair flame hair, of truth, early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight someone. John Hayes I'm talking about, aren't yes. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers.
4: That's where
2: it goes from. Thanks a lot,
4: Pepe. Fair
2: to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not.
4: Let me show you right now. For you, give it up.
2: That was Sam Weinman from Golf Digest. What are you looking at me like that for? murphy people will remember tiny videos of sporting <laughs> meltdowns way more than <laughs> solid 72 hole performances uh, in i think next week US, you'll feel differently about, open
3: yeah i think next week even you'll feel differently about the early elves uh <laughs> multi-puts from three feet
2: really good shot with sam there great greatly enjoyed that we will tweet a link as i mentioned to that piece that he has on greg norman which is a chapter out of the upcoming book shane larry did a reverse jordan speed i think had a lot of problems over the weekend but then, boom, hole in one at 16.
3: Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, it's, it's weird. You know, you would think that the disappointment of how Friday, Saturday, and Sunday went would kind of, you know, dull the excitement for Shane when the, the hole in one went in on Sunday uh, afternoon. But I mean, it was obvious. Like, there is no more famous part three in golf than the 16th at Augusta. I think that's fair enough. Maybe the, the 12th at Augusta, <laughs> maybe. But I mean, that is about the most famous part three. Certainly the most famous part three whole location. I mean, when, you know, when you watch it on a Thursday, you're like, oh God, that's a great tee shot on Sunday when people end up down in that little hollow. <laughs> so, I mean, the idea that you could hit that shot, everyone has that arc. Everyone has the ball landing right there, the ball trickling slowly down that hill into that uh, whole location. <laughs> I mean, it's about as iconic a golf shot as there is. And for Larry to have a moment like that, even with all the disappointment of how the, the three days went after that brilliant 400-par uh, round on, on Thursday, I mean, I think that's a memory that, that's, oh, yeah. not gonna, that's not going to fade, you know? Even
2: with Davis Love wasn't it Trevor, Trevor Immelman mm. stealing his thunder a little bit later? We're going to forget about that. Ah, forget about that. Scratch about. those in the record books. I'm greatly looking forward to the Irish Times second captain's New York football podcast.
1: That's. Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really.
2: Well, you can
4: laugh.
0: I'm
2: a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me.
0: You don't mind. know what you're talking about.
4: Well did you know so if you like just to it. stay
0: alive or something? Oh, okay. I'd say it to you, Pac, not say it well, to now. you now. I'm, I'm down to field and we'll the feeder. What you doing down here, you're showing me man. <laughs> well then we're gonna hear from Kevin Grogan, who is a who who played once played for Manchester United back in the day, was a European champion with Ireland in nineteen ninety-eight, the under sixteens, um, a player of that vintage. Uh, he's been over here in New York uh, since two thousand nine. Uh, he's a coach now. He's a technical director of a soccer club over here, and uh, he's got a pretty interesting story. So we're going to hear from him. We're also going to hear from uh, George Vesey, uh, who was a long-time uh, columnist uh, for the New York Times for uh, for thirty years. Uh, went to eight World Cups. Uh, wrote a book about that. Uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit about um, you know what it was like covering soccer in the early days in America when it was viewed as you know an un-American activity and uh, the changes <laughs> that have uh, happened in, in the years since.
2: We didn't just talk to him, Ken. We, or you more specifically, were invited out to his house.
0: Yeah, I was, I was just come back from his house, actually, up in uh, Port Washington, which is on the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the north uh, kind of coast of Long Island. Uh, very nice house, on, I have to say. Uh, one of those big uh, uh, American kind of wooden houses you see in movies with like loads of rooms. You walk around and you get lost. <laughs> Pretty nice.
2: <laughs> I sounded pretty confident earlier on when I described where Randall's Island is. Wasn't quite so confident last night, Murph, when I led you in a bit of a merry dance through wow. East Harlem and onto random buses. Yeah. Uh, we got there in the end, though. Yeah. We got there in the end. Uh, we were a little lost. We were a little cli- the cliched Irishman in New York types. Subway up to
3: wildlife. 125th Street and uh, hop on a bus and that'll bring you out there. That would, they, those were the instructions. <laughs> uh, the subway part, obviously, handled with... Uh, no little alacrity by the, by the pair ah, of us A I would say. And as we walked out, bus for Randall's Island. Uh, you know, so we, we said, okay, let, let's, let's just get on this. Let's just get on this and see what happens. So we get on, and we have a look around. And we, we do, we, we, I think the second I got on the bus, I realised, I really, you know, the Randall's Island could be a pretty big place. <laughs> I really have no idea where we're going. All of a sudden, two, pe- two, two uh, gentlemen get on the bus... One of them, an extremely red-faced gentleman, <laughs> red hair, uh, and he, had, he appeared to have some football boots with him. I said, Owen, just go with me on this one. <laughs> just go with me. We walked up to where they were sitting down and just stood there and uh, tried to eavesdrop on their <laughs> conversation to see maybe they might say something along the lines of, God, we're a little late for GA training, training at Randall's with Island. With Johnny Glenn yeah. yeah. tonight, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, just little sniffing some clues. So we woke up and uh, the two lads turn around and go, oh, Murph, what's the crack? <laughs> we're like, thank you very ah, much, excellent. Connor and Jamie, we later found out, who were heading to the very training session that Galway Hurler, now New York footballer, Johnny Glenn, was about to, uh, to, to oversee.
2: We got there in the end and we got talking to Johnny Glenn. All right, we're out on Randall's Island with Johnny Glynn, I'm delighted to say. Johnny, how are you?
1: Not too bad knowing yourself.
2: I'm not bad at all. You're a, a local these days, so maybe you can give us a tour. What are we looking at around here?
1: Uh, well, I wouldn't call myself a local now, but I suppose just a of soccer pitches, as they say. But a lot of the, the GA teams come down here to go training because it's hard to get pitches. Let's say oh, between Lesbian up in the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens is kind of more central. So I suppose Sligo there tonight, team I'm involved with there, so that's why we're here tonight, to do a bit of training.
2: Uh, it's not a bad backdrop, I'm looking at the boys warming up there, and behind them, uh, not, uh, not a million miles away, is the beautiful Manhattan skyline there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Nice old view, it's a long way from our friend, I tell you <laughs> But I eh, don't know, it's grand it's it's a nice it's a nice view, but like I said, it's hard enough to try and get lights as you see yourselves there, there's only two pitches of lights so you have to make do what you get if you're last come you're last serve sorta, of, you know.
2: I suppose then you know that the lads are turning up, the lads ready to go are are really going for it then. You're not gonna, they're not gonna make the effort to come out here and, and go unless their heart's in it.
1: Well that's it you no, know. I have to say, you know, above all teams I've seen out here and that you now. Sligo, they're all they kind of all know each other. They're all out together. They're all drinking together. They're all friends. Like so, it's a good old sign. Like you can even see it there yourselves. Like this atmosphere. There's no giving out. Nothing. Everyone's friends. Like so, I suppose kind of get together for them, just enjoy it too. You've uh, you came out not long after the All Ireland last year. Yeah, I came out. Uh, I think it was a week and a half after. Done a full week. Uh, I was sick, but uh, <laughs> came out the week after that, and I'm here since.
2: What was the thought behind coming out at the time? Was it?
1: Well, actually, was supposed. I was originally I was coming out. I was coming out in May And then I said "John, you know what I'll give the Hurling another year so I thought we might win it Like we've a great team there And I thought we could win it And fortunately we didn't But shall we give it our best shot And now I'm out here now And I don't know An unforeseeable future As they say uh, And like Was it
3: an element of Just the way the, 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 the year finished That you just wanted to Just get away from it To just escape all Sort of all of the post-mortems And everything That would be happening in Galway
1: Well Funny enough And Anthony Coney And Eugene Cune Could back me up on this In January I said to them that I got my graduate visa and I don't know what my story is and then two weeks later I said to them, look at lads, when we get to the Ireland, I'll have to come out here for three days after the semi-final to activate my visa, which I did after a bet tip, I came out for three or four days just to activate my visa and went home. So literally then, the way the, the visa, you can't be able to America for too long in the year, I think it's 30 days or something like that, so I literally had to come back straight after that land. So that's that's kind of how it felt and So the only thing that was out of the blue I had a booked And yeah. so everyone knew I was going So that's the way it just was And pity we didn't win the alarm But it it is what it is Would have made the flight over a little a little easier I think Oh yeah, well That's the way I suppose it Would have made it a lot easier but. You never know. Hopefully, again, might get the chance again down the line.
2: Yeah, it's a funny one, Johnny. I guess people kind of think these things sound like they're out of the blue because they don't know what planning has gone into it or whatever. But it's something that you want. Is, is it a career
1: decision, a life decision? Why? Why are you in New York? I don't know. I I came out here for a holiday two years ago. I came out for seven days, and I suppose I loved the place. I did. I thought it was unreal, and I said, "Johnny, you know if I ever get the chance to come out, I'll take it." And then when I was graduating college, I found out this graduate visa that was coming to America and I said, you know what, I'll hop in that for a while and see how I get on. So originally I was only coming out for a few months and as a fellow at work there now, I'm, I'm working with a crowd called Topline, it's a drywall company and they're very good to me and they, they offered me a visa for next year and, you know what, I said, if I could, I'll go for it and see how it goes.
3: And and so I mean, everyone in Galway, I'm sure like I told people that I was coming out and beating it, every single person from Galway came up to me and said, Try and convince him to come back now. And as <laughs> I'm looking out at the Manhattan skyline, I'm kinda of thinking, Am I doing this guy a favor if I put the squeeze with him to tell him to come back? But I mean, you understand that there are so many
1: people at home that, that want you to come back. I mean, is that kind of a is that kind of a weird thing to try and to try and juggle? Uh, sure I think about it like it it would kill me not to go back, but I can't do both. If I go back, I can't come back here. And then if I stay here, I can't hurl back there. Mm. Do you know, it's, it, it, it's a hard one now. tell me that much. And between sleepless nights and thinking about it and phone calls home, and do you know what? but the more I thought about it, I honestly do think Galway are good enough to win all Lerryn without me. With me, obviously, you know, it'd be nice to be there. But like, I tell you this much: if Galway gets to and final, i will be the first lad in the Hogan's Stent. <laughs> you know, and that's a fact. because like, I know what goes in, and what effort goes put through by lads so like if they get to an ireland i the first side, they're rolling for
2: them I'm sure there are some people saying listening and saying ah what's he talking about you should be, should be staying at home you know you should be there you should be trying to win the All-Ireland personally I think it's great I think you have to live your own life and make your own decisions is that something that you you said there was a lot of sleepless nights a lot of talking about it
1: but what was the final decision you, you still seem a bit like there's a bit of angst over it I don't know what the final decision is I just saw I suppose I'm only 22 and John my last 4 or 5 years round the clock it was all dedicated to hurling and don't don't get me wrong, I'd never change a minute of it because I enjoyed every bit of it. The wins, the losses, everything, the friends I made. But it was just something something about New York that kept me here now. I don't know. I can't pinpoint what it is. But I just I actually it feels like home here to be honest. I really do like it here. Simple as. I don't I don't know what what it is that's pulling me here. Whether it's the light light or that, I don't know. But I just I really like it here. I like it's it's like home so sure, if you come up to Woodland, Woodland where I live it's like walking down shop street can go do you, <laughs> else, do you know yeah so, so you found a good community here and it was ready made for you well I did yeah well I suppose I had a brother here f- almost four years now and I suppose he kind of had the foundations laid for me and I came out with my girlfriend there Serena and my <laughs> and uncle here and I have a lot of friends lads that are friends that are over here that I know and I suppose it all made it a bit easier coming here do you know like I knew somebody and I thought, like I, said, I, only thought, I thought I was only coming over for six months or four or five months I didn't know I didn't know when I was coming or how I was going to land on my feet but I did with the job I got now and I have to say the boys I work with and I work for are very good to me and they're looking after me so like if I was to walk away from that I'd be walking away for a lot do you know yeah. is it right that you're going to be playing for the New York footballers this, this summer uh, well like if, if I'm starting or not starting job, <laughs> but I'm starting with the many at the moment and I'm enjoying it and it is going well like you know lads might talk down New York a bit or whatever but like. To be honest, lads, this team that's there—the talent is unbelievable. It is very good. It's just obviously the game time not having the games probably kills it, kills it a bit. But uh, I might get no shock there the first weekend of May. Hopefully, <laughs> you never know. You know the other, like the the Rossies, are you know they're they're
3: already planning all Ireland final. Well, I suppose this weekend was a little bit of a dampener for them. But I mean they're on a high, and the idea is, and I know that there are plenty Ross Common people coming over as well. They, they, the idea that you That you touch on there though That talent has never That's never been a problem For New York There's always footballers Out here yeah. I suppose it's just a case Of tying it all together well, now. It's
1: just well, like, it's, I suppose Roscommon are coming, uh, going to be Coming out here With a, a serious Seriously campaign I know they lost carry the weekend weren't there, But they're flying It's Like super fit you know, Football everything and New York are coming out of a without playing a game. Well, not a game. Like obviously we're playing games, but without to playing a competitive league game or a competitive championship match or whatever the likes you want to put it. And like Anton, even if you look at Galway last year, our first game against Dublin, we just scraped. Got the just got the draw. If we didn't get that. If we lost that, would we be in the Northern Ireland final? You know. So you're going to make mistakes in the first day, and that's probably where New York fall down. They don't get the chance to make the mistakes. I'm saying that lads, I will say there's lads there in New York that they make any team at home. In my eyes anyway, if they were put the, put the effort in that you see it being put at home, like there is serious talent there and like I said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we caught a bit of an upset there. Oh, whether we beat Russ coming or not, but definitely we'll, we'll give them 70 minutes of the best football we can give them and see how it goes. How are you enjoying your own football? How are you? How are your football skills? Ah, not too bad, I suppose. Our drawn, drawn, now for those for the uninitiated, <laughs> it's not exactly a football stronghold. Well, no, I suppose that, but uh, my family, all my relations, like, it'd be all football. It's careless friend. It's Narko. That's what my father played for and his brothers and all my cousins are all footballers. Like, to be honest, I'm probably the only one in the whole family between myself and no, the brother probably the only ones play a bit of hurling. Well I like saying that no actually when you were saying Roscommon I've like a cousin Adrian Murphy is coming forward there in the Roscommon hurling team but yeah. uh, as long as it's not the football team we'll over yeah. to right. But uh, yeah it's all football in the background the family in that now saying that I have two left feet in me but I'll give it a go and see and it might be fit and hand past the ball, you know, I might get away with that hopefully. <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: you said earlier Johnny, that you thought you could you thought there was not an all, all- Ireland team last year and that's why you were still there last summer. Looking back now, is there still a nagging regret that you left it behind you a little bit as a team?
1: Ah, sure, look as I'm still regretting leaving behind 2012 All-Ireland, and that's four years ago, so you can only imagine six months ago how I'm feeling. But like I said, I still think the Galway team is good enough to win All-Ireland, and I fully back them. Like, the players there, you know yourselves, like, between Conor Whelan, all as far as Joe Kenning, Fergal Moore, James Skell, Cullen Kenlin, like all these lads, they're all serious players. Like So that's one sense that's why I didn't mind as much not going home and hurling like I, another thing was I didn't want to be coming back in halfway through the year and they had the groundwork put in and this lad just walking back in and like obviously I wouldn't expect to be back on the team but just walking back in like that I wasn't comfortable in my own way that way but I still Honest to God I still think God we're good enough To win the Ireland Like I said John will be the first lad there If they yeah, do And yeah, yeah. I'll probably celebrate better than anyone So hopefully Hopefully
2: Well we're going to miss I think this season most What we're going to miss from you Are your post-match interviews <laughs> <laughs> One in particular Johnny oh, What was uh, What was the What was going through your own mind When you gave that interview
1: uh, I don't know sure. I, I thought I was adrenaline And I was hyped up But I, One thing I can remember Was John Kentwell's Eyes Lighting up <laughs> And I uh, I was just, oh, What am I have to do so, but, uh, know, it's the it was, sort of thing, actually. It, came out, it just came out. Yeah, 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 that
3: you're like, it's kind of said, and then you're. I didn't. I, did I actually say that? No, I'm sure I didn't. And no, then didn't. It, it's only then you realize that maybe she's reacted to something.
1: So oh, sure, yeah. if you got. Oh, uh, the amount of abuse I got for it since I'm still getting abuse Yeah. I wish I hadn't said it, but you know what? things like that do happen, like I do it did. for the moment.
3: It did get the message across as well. Yeah. I mean I,
1: you know Well like uh, as I said after the match and I, I s I'd say like if I met a lad in the street and he asked me the same question he probably would have got the same answer. Yeah. And that's the way I am like I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't be I'd want to paint a picture, you know, I'd just say no it is isn't that's it. And I'd not say no if you ask any of the guys they'll tell you the same crack. So Johnny
2: listen, it <laughs> sounds like you're really enjoying it over here anyway. That's uh, that's the main reason I wanted to come out here and chat to you. Oh yeah no I
1: am. I'm enjoying it now, I'm enjoying life, enjoying work and you know, that's good, now, It is good. Sure. Like I said, like I'm looked after. there rough Like they've, they've given me a car to get to trainings and stuff. And I was just, you no, know, I'm enjoying it. And I don't. Know, I don't know when I'm going home. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'll just play by ear and I'll see how it goes. Well, listen, the boys look like they're finishing their warm up now, so I you really have to get back over. And listen, we did t- thank, I think it
2: was Connor and Jamie for seeing us here safely. Yeah. Because we were a little bit lost <laughs> out there.
1: Will, uh, the two boys, they put up in the WhatsApp group that they didn't have to go doing the hair run because they, they helped out the boys for Johnny. They were saying, well, Shalukas. <laughs> yes, we were. We are in a storm. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Johnny, listen, great to talk to you and so uh, best of nice. luck. Thanks, buddy.
1: No worries. Thanks very much.
2: What an absolutely sound man. Johnny Glynn there speaking to us as he trained the Sligo Football Club on Randall's Island. Mm. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the chat. Yeah, it was good. good. I don't think he's talked that much about it at all, really. I know the no. Galway manager has been asked about it after every every few weeks it Pretty comes over yeah. yeah and yeah. after the playoff the league playoff defeat to cork he said look it's not happening we respect him his wishes he's staying over in new york but no i don't think we'd heard really Johnny glenn's explanation no, for it. no just
3: all we'd heard was from from me donahue really so uh, what what was interesting to me was you know and that was true actually what i said in the interview the amount of goalie people who did actually say to be here you know try and have a word with the man <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually only when you come over here and you see how much fun that was, that looked at in Randall's Island. Uh, for guys over here, you know, with not a care in the world, you know, guys mm. maybe 23, 24, who don't care about the fact that they go to work, they've got 20 minutes to make themselves some food and then they've got to catch a subway and a bus to get out to training. I mean, it just looked like so much fun last night. And when Johnny says that he, he's over here and he doesn't know why he, loves, why he loves it, but he loves it, he's 22 years old. He's played in three All-Ireland finals. If he doesn't think that you know, one year out isn't gonna. It's it's gonna greatly enrich his life and his experiences, and not harm his hurling career even one bit. I don't think. I mean, it's it's maybe it's a lot easier for us to see over here than it would be if we were sitting in the Irish Times studio uh, last week or next week. Um, Do you know what I but, think he's
2: acting like? Yeah. A normal human being. I think on that. I you, hate to you, accuse you, an intercounty. Star you know how that, that's frowned upon. But what? I do feel like he's acting like a normal twenty-two-year-old yeah. human being.
3: Yeah, who's <laughs> yeah. a bit switched on. So yeah, we wish him luck for the rest of his stay here in New York. That's we had for sure. a
2: great chat earlier on about the collapse of Jordan Speed. We mentioned Shane Lowry's hole in one. We talked quite a lot of golf, but we're not quite finished with the Masters just yet. Nesbitt, watch. <laughs> Arsenal, <laughs> what a weekend. What, what's that, oh, sorry, no,
3: just that, just that ridiculous statement. Sorry, go on, old. Yes, you were talking about James
2: Nesbitt. Ah, the great man. What a weekend. Well, f- firstly, thanks to Bobby Hassett, Frank Darcy, and Jackie Steed, who got in touch with me on Thursday to let me know that Nesbitt got the prestigious gig of the. Yeah, a lot of people get in touch anytime Nesbitt moves or breathes these days. So we got the great gig of opening voiceover and Sky Sports Masters coverage. But his impact did not stop there. Oh, no. Thank you to Johnny, Matt, Tracy, Owen, Gene Renahan and a few others for pointing me towards the BBC's behind-the-scenes coverage on Sunday night. I don't know if you've seen this, Ken. There was some footage of major celebs enjoying Danny Willett's victory there, including the likes of Alan Shearer and others, and enjoying some presumably complimentary hospitality, I think it has to be said as well, among the elite. Free to those who can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> <Free> <laughs> among the can. elite was Alex Ferguson who was asked you know, how great it was to be there, that kind of thing. And Fergie had an able wingman.
1: I'm very fortunate in my life to retire, anybody go and see that. If I'd been managing Man United, I wouldn't be here. If I'd been managing Man United, I wouldn't be in the Ryder Cup, (laughs) simply because my job was more
0: important. (laughs) With that privilege, having retired and doing this, what I've done today,
1: is fantastic. (laughs) I
0: (laughs) have to tell, there's a few people at home are glad you were managing Manchester United for
3: as long as you did. (laughs) Oh, oh,
2: oh, Shut what up Nesbitt. Nesbitt. Oh, Nesbitt There's a right Nesbitt.
1: at the
3: end there after
0: shut Alex up, Ferguson <laughs> brought it on for a while <laughs> Ferguson sounded like he was having a whale of a time oh, there yeah, yeah
3: He He He
0: he was he really had enjoying had the Masters a Great
3: great time oh, I mean listen it's a hell of a golf tournament who wouldn't enjoy it Ken Oh yeah Particularly if you're watching it from <laughs> where Fergie was watching it He's done it a hell of
0: a lot for Manchester United
3: Yeah He is <laughs> 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 yes, He's done a hell He's here with a lot of p- Jimmy Nesbitt was there with a lot of people He's done a lot that's it from i thought nesbitt was dead but it it turns out this slot is back in a major way that's it
2: from podcast number one in new york city thanks again to air lingus and fitzpatrick hotels for their support in making this happen the football podcast with kevin grogan and george vesey is out today. Probably out by the time you're listening to this one. Big live show here at Brass Monkey with Henry Sheffield and Andy Lee and John Doody. Oh, Des Bishop's going to be here and probably a few more legends as well. That's on Wednesday night and we'll be ready for you to listen to on Thursday. All right, lads, want to go for a little stroll along the high line? It starts just outside there. Uh, yeah, nah, nah, I'm just All ah, right, I'll go myself. <laughs> thanks, guys. Hey, thanks, thanks, so. thanks for listening. Thanks, Ken. Bye-bye.
1: It's the second time
0: it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.